Hello, this is Christopher from Defeat Modernism. I hope you enjoyed that opening short film of St. Michael the Archangel cutting off the four heads of the dragon. And those four heads represent the satanic forces of Judaism, Freemasonry, communism, and modernism in the church. And it's important to understand the symbolism and that they are one, one in the attack against the church, one in the attack against Christ and against humanity, but they have four different heads. So they appear to be different organizations under different names, but they are all united in attacking Christ and his church. So let us pray every day, asking St. Michael's intercession to defend us in our battle against these satanic forces as we await the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the restoration of Christendom, and a true holy pope and a great Catholic monarch to rise and deliver us from these evils. I have a particular devotion to St. Michael because I was born on his feast day, September 29th, uh, in St. Michael's Hospital, and both my grandfather and my uncle have the name Michael. And you're probably wondering why I'm not named Michael because of all that. Uh, well, that's for a good reason, because on November 30th, I would be adopted. Because it was so close to Christmas, name me Christopher. So I am a survivor of the massacre of the infants uh, since 1973. So this is, again, just showing the importance, the value of each human life and that we must value life, especially the life of the unborn and the vulnerable. Now, in this video, I'm going to cover a couple of different things regarding St. Michael. In the first part, I will be going over the long form of the St. Michael the Archangel prayer that Pope Leo XIII created. All of you should be familiar with the short form that is said at the end of each low mass, the St. Michael the Archangel defend us in battle prayer. But I think few are probably aware of the actual long form, which is very, very powerful, very telling. So I'm going to go over that and then I'm going to have Father William Jenkins of the Society of St. Pius V uh, go over some of the background behind that prayer, some of the history around it. So that'll be in part one. Then in part two, I will go through the Butler's Lives of the Saints, so the writings about um, about Saint Michael there in that uh, in that publication in that section of the publication of that book, uh, they do go over some of the ap apocryphal facts, apocryphal writings about Saint Michael the Archangel, which I think a lot of you will find very fascinating. And then in the last part. I will go over an article about Mont St. Michael in France, and that's also very interesting as well. So I hope you enjoy it. Please remember to hit the like button, subscribe. Also subscribe to my other channels. I have Rumble channel, Odyssey. I have an audio-only podcast because as, you know, as we are probably well aware, uh, soon this channel will probably be taken down or anything that promotes Christianity in general. So please subscribe to my other channels as well. And so let's now begin 
with the St. Micah the Archangel long-form prayer. On October 13th, 1884, Pope Leo XIII had a remarkable vision after he had finished celebrating Mass in his private Vatican chapel. It was attended by a few cardinals and some members of the Vatican staff. He had suddenly stopped at the foot of the altar. He stood there for about 10 minutes in a trance. His face was ashen white. Then, after this, he went immediately from the chapel to his office and he composed the St. Michael the Archangel prayer with the instructions to be said after all low masses everywhere. When he was asked what happened, he explained that as he was about to leave the foot of the altar, he suddenly heard two voices, one kind and gentle of our Lord, the other very harsh of Satan. And they seemed to come near the tabernacle. And as he listened, he heard the following conversation. And the voice of Satan in his pride had boasted, I can destroy your church. And our Lord had responded, you can, then go ahead and do so. And Satan said, to do so, I need more time and more power. Our Lord responded, how much time, how much power? And Satan said, 75 to 100 years and a greater power over those who will give themselves over to my service. And then our Lord responded, you have the time, you will have the power, do with them what you will. So in 1886, Pope Leo XIII decreed that the St. Michael the Archangel prayer be said at the end of every low mass. Throughout the church, along with the Salve Regina, so this is the Hail Holy Queen. And this practice continued until around 1970 with the introduction of the illicit so-called new mass of Paul VI, which is no coincidence. Paul VI said the smoke of Satan had entered into the sanctuary. Well, him and John the Twenty-Third let Satan into into the sanctuary through their heresies, through their abominations against the Mass, against the Church, and the doctrines of the Church. And it is even rumored that there was a satanic enthronement of Lucifer in Saint Paul outside the walls and at a location on the thirty-three. Power, the 33rd degree parallel, which is uh, Charleston, South Carolina in the U.S. So that was written up by Father Malachi Martin in the book Windswept House, which was a, a fiction novel based upon fact. So it was a what is termed a faction. But just a couple other things I want to mention about this prayer, the significance of the dates as well. If you remember in the beginning I said this vision happened on October 13th, 1884. Exactly 33 years later to the day would be the miracle of the Son of Our Lady uh, at Fatima. Okay, so we remember all the warnings Our Lady gave in those apparitions, the warning of Russia spreading her errors throughout the world. Uh, that year, the Russian Revolution would happen, and now we've had Russia or communism, I should say, sweep across the entire, the entire world, including here in the United States. We also see that from that date, if we look 75 years 
into the future from 1884, that gives us 1959. And that is the year that John XXIII called the Second Vatican Council, which was the French Revolution in the church, the triumph of Freemasonry and uh, Judeo-Freemasonry over the visible church, let's say, not the true church. 100 years from 1884 would be 1984. And this was the year that John Paul II had his the ECC quote unquote prayer meeting where he had all those pagan and heretical uh, religions, sects, offer incense to demonic spirits inside of Catholic churches. Uh, those of you who would have watched part three of my video on St. Pius X against modernism, I have some clips of it there. My other videos, including John Paul the Great Apostate and Ecumenism is the Enemy of Christ and His Church. Those have a complete video of those abominations that happened there. So you can see it with, for yourself with your own eyes. So, so it's just very interesting that all of these horrific events in church history and world history uh, coincide exactly with the vision that Leo XIII had seen. So now please join with me in praying this long form St. Michael the Archangel prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. O glorious Prince of the Heavenly Host, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in the battle and in the terrible warfare that we are waging against the principalities and powers, against the rulers of this world of darkness, against the evil spirits. Come to the aid of man, whom Almighty God created immortal, made in his own image and likeness, and redeemed at a great price from the tyranny of Satan. Fight this day the battle of the Lord, together with the holy angels, as already thou hast fought the leader of the proud angels, Lucifer, and his apostate host, who were powerless to resist thee, nor was there place for them any longer in heaven. That cruel, ancient serpent, who was called the devil, or Satan, who seduces the whole world, was cast into the abyss with his angels. Behold, this primeval enemy and slayer of men has taken courage. Transformed into an angel of light, he wanders about with all the multitude of wicked spirits, invading the earth in order to blot out the name of God and of his Christ, to seize upon, slay, and cast into eternal perdition souls destined for the crown of eternal glory. This wicked dragon pours out as a most impure flood the venom of his malice on men of depraved mind and corrupt heart, the spirit of lying, of impiety, of blasphemy, and a pestilent breath of impurity and of every vice and iniquity. These most crafty enemies have filled and inebriated with gall and bitterness the church, the spouse of the Immaculate Lamb, and have laid impious hands on her most sacred possessions. In the holy place itself, where the see of Holy Peter and the chair of truth has been set up as the light of the world, they have raised the throne of their abominable impiety with the iniquitous design that when the pastor has been struck, the sheep may be scattered. Arise then, O invincible prince, 
bring help against the attacks of the lost spirits to the people of God and give them the victory. They venerate thee as their protector and patron. In thee, holy church glories as her defense against the malicious power of hell. To thee has God entrusted the souls of men to be established in heavenly beatitude. O pray to the God of peace that he may put Satan under our feet, so far conquered that he may no longer be able to hold men in captivity and harm the church. Offer our prayers in the sight of the Most High, so that they may quickly find mercy in the sight of the Lord, and vanquishing the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Do thou again make him captive in the abyss, that he may no longer seduce the nations. Amen. Behold the cross of the Lord. Be scattered, ye hostile powers. The Lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, the Root of David. Let thy mercies be upon us, O Lord, as we have hoped in thee. O Lord, hear my prayer, and let my cry come unto thee. Let us pray. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we call upon thy holy name, and as supplicants we implore thy clemency, that by the intercession of Mary, ever-Virgin Immaculate, and our Mother, and of the glorious Saint Michael the Archangel, thou wouldst deign to help us against Satan and all the other unclean spirits who wander about the world for the injury of the human race and the ruin of souls. Amen. Now that's a very powerful prayer. What I want to do now is turn to a clip from an interview that Father Jenkins did about this topic. It's part of the Catholics Believe program. This was a question that was posed by one of the uh, viewers on the St. Michael the Archangel prayer. And he's going to go over the, the history, what, what was also behind some of the text in that long-form prayer. And you can see that this particular, uh, this clip came from the January 23rd, 2020 episode entitled Traditional Catholic versus Merely Conservative Catholic. Now what Catholics believe has hit, been hit with a couple strikes from YouTube. And so as of me recording this, they were no longer uploading videos to that channel. The current videos will stay there. But from now on, what you're going to want to do is go directly to their website, which you can see what that looks like on the screen now. It is www.wcbohio.com. So that's uh, W for what, C for Catholic, B for belief, and then Ohio, wcbohio.com. On there, they'll have the masses uh, each day, each Sunday, the What Catholics Believe videos, and then there's a lot of other great information about the saints of the day and, and other items. They do also have an audio-only podcast that you can pick up on, I would say, probably all, if not most, podcast apps. And also, I do have a podcast as well. Uh, you can find the link to that in the description of this video. So now, let me turn it over to Father Jenkins of the Society St. Pius V. This is the society that I belong to. This question, Father, deals with the uh, the words of the long, the original St. Michael, the Archangel Prayer. Mm -hmm. And uh, the interpretation of that, uh, the, the passage that the viewer questions is, uh, 
a line that says, In the holy place itself, where has been set up the sea of the most holy Peter in the chair of truth for the light of the world, they have raised the throne of their abominable impiety with the iniquitous design that when the pastor has been struck, the sheep may be scattered. So he asked, Father, what do they mean when uh, when this prayer says they have raised the throne of their abominable impiety? Does that mean that... Is this uh, one of the, our emails? Mm-hmm. And and so they're asking, since it says they have raised their throne mm-hmm. of abominable impiety. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that that, that, that throne of abominable uh, impiety was already set up? In 1988 or whenever that 18, prayer... 18. 18, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. In, in the 1880s, when Pope, Pius, Pope Leo XIII had the vision, the Correct. locution, yeah. uh, whether it was already an accomplished fact... Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one has to go back to the historical context here. Remember, St. Pius, or I'm sorry, Pope Leo XIII was writing this prayer, composed this prayer in the, 19, in the 1880s. Yes. Okay? Uh, Vatican I, the council, had just taken place 10 years before or so, right? And it was during that council, 1869 and 1870, that the Freemasonic uh, mercenary uh, legions of Garibaldi, the Mason Garibaldi, uh, invaded Rome, right? Forcibly dispersed the council, Vatican I. Vatican I was never ended. There was no formal end to the First Vatican Council because it was dispersed as the Masonic uh, armies were approaching Rome to lay siege to Rome, and to take Rome, Ten, and which they succeeded in doing, in fact. And uh, that's where the, the Pope became, from that point, a prisoner of the Vatican. The Vatican was the holdout where the Pope had security. He was surrounded by Rome, which was, up to that, the, the, the Masonic taker of, takeover of Rome, was actually the kingdom of the Pope. The Pope was actually the king of that country. So what the Masonic legions were doing was they were taking away the marches and the entirety of the Papal States and leaving the Pope basically holed up in the castle, in the keep, basically, uh, the Vatican. That's essentially what it was. It was like the castle and the keep, and, and the enemy had completely engulfed his entire kingdom but he had not taken that. And so the Pope became a prisoner in that. And he was a prisoner there from 1870 until 1929 with the Lateran Treaty of Pius XI, right? Gaspari, uh, Mussolini, right? And that is when uh, the Italian state, uh, as it were, paid for the, the, the land, the kingdom that they had taken, that the Masons had taken from the Pope. And uh, through Gaspari, the Secretary of State, Pope Pius XI agreed to that. Okay, so there was a formal agreement leaving uh, the Pope as a kingdom, the Vatican City, and basically the patriarchal basilicas and certain other holy sites around the city. Right? Um, to this day, when one enters Vatican City, one is leaving Italy and entering a sovereign state, the Vatican. Okay, to this day, as a result of that Lateran Treaty of 1929. When that prayer was written in the 1980s, 
You're talking about a, a decade after the Freemasons had taken Rome away. Pope Leo XIII is talking about Rome. He's talking about they've set up the throne of their abominable impiety. It was past tense because they had taken the city of Rome. And that was the Sea of Peter. Rome was the city of Peter. Vatican City is not, is not the Sea of Peter. Rome, the city of Rome, is actually the Sea of Peter. That is the seat of his diocese. And so in, in taking Rome, in seizing the residence of the Pope, the Quirinale, in, in seizing the, the Lateran, St. John Lateran and so on, <laughs> they had set up the government of their Masonic, their Masonic conspiracy right there in Rome. And that's what he's saying, that they had succeeded in doing. He's not saying, though, what evidently our author is interpreting, that they had already succeeded in setting up uh, the power of the Masons in the Holy See itself and taking control of the papacy. They still had not succeeded in taking control of the papacy. That was their initial intent, but they didn't succeed in 1869 and 1870 because the Pope still remained at large and out of their control. Would you say they, they have succeeded now? I would say they definitely have succeeded now. No doubt about it. They have definitely succeeded in their plans to have uh, secure the election of someone who thinks exactly as they do and who honors their wishes and fulfills their, their wishes with regard to the church, carrying out their plan, whether consciously or unconsciously, deliberately or not deliberately, it doesn't matter. Remember when, when Nubius wrote the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita, he said, we need to secure a pope according to our designs, but make sure he's not part of our plans because he could expose the plan at any moment and ruin everything. So we need to secure a pope, even a pope, but just a pope who thinks like we do. And we need to, to prepare a generation. We have to, he says it's the work of generations to prepare generation after generation, to prepare a generation which will produce a man who could become such a pope. Who will have to work their way through the seminaries and work their way through the parishes and so on, work their way up in the church to get to the point where they would be elected and chosen. Um, remember Belladad, the female attorney from Italy, who uh, apostatized from the Catholic Church, became a communist agent here in this country, working with the labor unions as an attorney. This is back in the 20s and 30s. Belladad converted back to her faith, largely through the influence of, of uh, Bishop Sheen, actually, rejecting communism. But she also saw the contradictions in communism, that they were liars, that they did not care about the common working man at all. All they cared about was the party, the party, the party, the Communist Party and its power. And so she converted back to the Catholic faith and she exposed the workings of the communists in this country and around the world. She testified before the House Committee on Un-American Activities that she was involved in the recruiting of 1,100, 1,100 men to enter the Catholic seminaries and become priests as agents of the Kremlin, agents of the Communist Party, USSR. Um, she said that, she testified that under oath before the House Committee on America, American Activities here in the United States of America. Uh, 1,100 that she was aware of, you know. That's one person, okay, who, who could bring that testimony. 
So, um, yes, I do believe they have definitely uh, succeeded in their plan to secure a pope according to their designs, who would deceive the Catholic people worldwide. What did Nubia say there? He said, they will think that they're marching in procession behind the cross and the banner and the tiara leading them, that it's a Catholic. But he says, in fact, it will be our revolution. They will be following us. And he said, if we secure a pope according to our wishes, it will take only the movement of a little finger of that pope to set on fire the four corners of the world with revolution. This is the revolution en permanence, as he says, the permanent ongoing revolution. It is the suborning of the Catholic Church. And this is what Nubia said. So you see what has happened now, after Vatican II, uh, in, during Vatican II and its aftermath, and now we have this Francis, and I think this is exactly what's playing out right now. There's a book that appeared not long ago by uh, a man named Taylor Marshall called Infiltration. And it's uh, drawn a lot of attention, a lot of fire, a lot of information. But these are things we've been pointing out to people for decades now that he has just put together and put before people. And now they're, they're discovering that, my goodness, infiltration, the church has been infiltrated, as though this is some new novel idea. But the ideal was actually not only floated, it was, it was mapped out by the head of the Freemasons in Italy back in the early 1800s, yep. over 200 years ago. So uh, at least some of the information is getting out there. I mean, for the, the merits or demerits of the book, I don't know. Some dear soul just sent me a copy of it today. I just received a copy, my first, my first copy of the, of the book today. But <laughs> again, it appears simply to be um, bringing up things that we've been saying for, for many years now about what's happening to the church. Okay. The fact that more and more people are being informed about it, that's good. Okay. But once they're informed about it, they have to decide what to do about it. And that's the question now that remains hanging in the balance. What will they do about that? Will they return to accepting the traditional Catholic faith and practicing it with a traditional Catholic religion and refuse modernism and refuse the Masons and their modernistic plans? Let us hope and pray that they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is ultimately entirely about the love of God, the love of God for us and our love for him. It's entirely about that, right? That's, that's the bottom line of it all, right? It's a matter of uh, being faithful. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, or what say. So the decisions that we make now, I mean, the information itself is not enough. There has to be a love for God to respond to that, to rise up about that and say, I, I will do the will of God in this. And I, I see now clearly the will of God is the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic religion. This is what Christ established, and I will be faithful to that unto death. This is the response that we have to hope from people. For that, we have to pray that they have the graces necessary to make that so decision. So that was some great information from Father Jenkins. I thank him for that. And for those of you who might not have heard of the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita that he spoke of, uh, or Belladad, I do have videos on these subjects. Uh, I have a, a series called The Pope Publishes Masonic Plot to Overthrow the Church. There is also an interview, where I guess I should say a speech given by Bella Dodd, uh, an audio that I made into a video on my channel. Uh, so if you do a search for that in my within my channel, you should be able to find it. I do also uh, suggest 
that all of you subscribe to my Rumble and Odyssey channels as well as the podcast because uh, eventually I would expect all this to be taken down at least on YouTube um, initially at some point given where things are headed. So now let's move over to the Butler's Lives of the Saints and I'm going to read directly from that, from the text of that. It's very interesting. It goes over some of the apocryphal texts regarding St. Michael the Archangel. And, and I think those of you, you know, who, who do find that interesting will, will, will be fascinated by some of these, some of the things that are discussed in this, in this part of the text. And then after that, I will go into the Mont St. Michael in France. The dedication of the Basilica of St. Michael the Archangel, commonly called Michaelmas Day. It cannot be disputed that in the apocryphal literature, which both before and after the coming of Christ, was so prevalent in Palestine and among the Jewish communities of the diaspora, the Archangel Michael played a great part. A starting point may be found in the authentic scriptures for the 10th and 12th chapters of the book of Daniel speak of Michael as, quote, one of the chief princes, the special protector of Israel, and describe how at that time shall Michael rise up, quote, the great prince who standeth for the children of, the, of thy people, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. The book of Henoch, which is regarded as the most important and influential of all the Old Testament apocrypha, Michael comes before us repeatedly as, quote, the great captain, the chief captain. He is set over the best part of mankind, i.e. over the chosen race who are the inheritors of the promises. He is merciful, and it is he who will explain the mystery which underlies the dread judgments of the Almighty. Michael is depicted as ushering Henoch himself into the divine presence, but he is also associated with the other great archangels, Gabriel, Raphael, and Phanuel, in binding the wicked potentes of earth and casting them into a furnace of fire. The merciful conception of the leader's office is, however, especially emphasized in the testaments of the twelve patriarchs and in the ascension of Isaiah, in which last we read of, quote, the great angel Michael always interceding for the human race. But in this same work, he is further presented as the scribe who records the deeds of all men in the heavenly books. In New Testament times, it is written in the Apocalypse of St. John, chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, that, quote, There was a great battle in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and they prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent who is called the devil and Satan, who seduceth the world. And he was cast unto the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him." Quote. Still more significant of the close association of a cult of St. Michael with Jewish traditions or folklore is the mention of his name in the epistle of St. Jude, verse 9. Quote, when Michael the archangel, disputing with the devil, contended about the body of Moses, he durst not bring against him the judgment of railing speech, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. 
Whether this is a direct quotation from the apocryphal writing known as the Assumption of Moses may be disputed because we do not possess the text of the latter part of that work. But Origen expressly states that it is a quotation and names this book. The story there recounted seems to have been that when Moses died, Samael, i.e. Satan, claimed the body on the ground that Moses, having killed the Egyptian, was a murderer. This blasphemy kindled the wrath of Michael, but he restrained himself, saying only, The Lord rebuke thee, thou slanderer. What seems certain is that the assumption of Moses did give prominence to the part played by St. Michael in the burial of Moses, and also that this same book was cited by certain fathers of the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. It was probably of pre-Christian origin, but we find in the Shepherd of Hermas, dating from the early part of the 2nd century AD, an illustration of the veneration in which St. Michael was held by those who were undoubtedly Christians. In the eighth similitude, we have the allegory of the twigs cut from the great willow tree, some of which sprout into vigorous life when planted and watered, while others droop or wither away. An angel of majestic aspect presides over the awards when these twigs are brought back for the inspection and judgment is passed upon them. This, we are told, is, quote, the great and glorious angel Michael, who has authority over this people and governs them. For this is he who gave them the law and implanted it in the hearts of believers. He accordingly superintends them to whom he gave it to see if they have kept the same. The shepherd of Hermas was treated by some of the early fathers as if it formed part of the canon of scripture, but it hardly seems to have been so widely popular as a very extravagant apocryphal writing of Jewish origin known as the Testament of Abraham, which is probably not very much later in date. In this, the Archangel Michael throughout plays almost the leading part. His difficult task is to reconcile Abraham to the necessity of death. Michael is presented to the reader as God's commander-in-chief, the organizer of all the divine relations with earth one whose intervention is so powerful with God that at his word, souls can be rescued even from hell itself. We have, for example, passages like the following. And Abraham said to the chief captain, St. Michael, I beseech thee, archangel, hearken to my prayer, and let us call upon the Lord and supplicate his compassion and entreat his mercy for the souls of the sinners whom I formerly in my anger cursed and destroyed, whom the earth swallowed up and the wild beasts tore in pieces and the fire consumed through my words. Now I know that I have sinned before the Lord our God. Come then, Michael, chief captain of the hosts above. Come, let us call upon God with tears, that he may forgive my sins and grant them to me. And the chief captain heard him, and they made entreaty before the Lord. And when they had called upon him for a long space, there came a voice from heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham, I have hearkened to thy voice and to thy prayer, and I forgive thee thy sin. And those whom thou thinkest that I destroyed, I have called up and brought them into life by my exceeding kindness, because for a season 
I have requited them in judgment, and those whom I destroy living upon earth, I will not requite in death. Whether this and similar apocrypha were based on Jewish traditions or not, there can be no doubt that they were read by Christians. In most of them, there is nothing so glaringly unorthodox as to stamp them as attacks upon the Christian faith. What is more, the thinly disguised fictional element, which is predominant in most of the hagiographical literature, even of the early centuries, must infallibly have dulled the critical sense of the great majority of readers, however piously inclined. To this, we may safely attribute the fact that these apocryphal writings were very widely circulated and that we find echoes of them even in the canonical epistles like that of St. Jude and still more in several of the early Greek fathers. The liturgy itself was imperceptibly colored by them. A most conspicuous example is the still existing offertory chant in Masses for the Dead. Lord Jesus Christ, King of Glory, deliver the souls of all the faithful departed from the pains of hell and from the deep pit Deliver them from the mouth of the lion that hell may not swallow them up, and that they may not fall into darkness, but may the standard bearer Michael conduct them into the holy light, which thou didst promise of old to Abraham and his seed. We offer to thee, Lord, sacrifices and prayers. Do thou receive them in behalf of those souls whom we commemorate this day. Grant them, Lord, to pass from death to that life which thou didst promise of old to Abraham and to his seed. There are many reminiscences here of the type of apocryphal literature which has just been spoken of. The association of St. Michael with Abraham is full of significance for anyone who is acquainted with the so-called Testament of Abraham. To enter into details would be here out of place. But it must suffice to point out that from the prominence thus given to St. Michael, further developments followed very naturally, as has been pointed out herein under the appearing of St. Michael on May 8th. Today's festival has been kept with great solemnity at the end of September ever since the 6th century at least. The Roman Martyrology implies that the dedication of the famous church of St. Michael on Mark Gargano gave occasion to the institution of this feast in the West, but it would appear that it really celebrates the dedication of a basilica in honor of St. Michael on the Salarian Way, six miles north of Rome. In the East, where he was regarded as having care of the sick, rather than as today, captain of the heavenly host and protector of soldiers, veneration of this archangel began yet earlier and certain healing waters were named after him, as at Kerotopa and Colossae. Sazomen tells us that Constantine the Great built a church in his honor called the Magalion at Sostanion, some way from Constantinople, and that in it the sick were often cured and other wonders wrought. Many churches in honor of St. Michael stood in the city of Constantinople itself, including a famous one at the Baths of Arcadius, whose dedication gave the Byzantines their feast on November 8th. Though only St. Michael be mentioned in the title of this festival, it appears from the prayers of the Mass that all the good angels are its object, together with this glorious tutelary angel of the Church. On it we are called upon, in a particular manner, to give thanks to God for the glory which the angels enjoy and to rejoice in their happiness, to thank Him for His mercy in constituting such beings to minister to our salvation by aiding us, 
to join them in worshiping and praising God, praying that we may do his will as it is done by these blessed spirits in heaven. And lastly, we are invited to honor them and implore their intercession and succor. Apart from the veneration of St. Michael, the earliest liturgical recognition of the other great archangels seems to be found in the primitive Greek form of the Litany of the Saints. Edmund Bishop was of opinion that this may be traced back to the time of Pope Sergius, 687-701 AD. In it, St. Michael, St. Gabriel, and St. Raphael are invoked in succession just as they are today, the only difference being that they there take precedence, not only of St. John the Baptist, but also of the Blessed Virgin herself. Saint Michael, 